Released on Sunday, June 22nd, 2014, this Agile Life, episode 54, Tice is immune to sarcasm. Our exclusive sponsor tonight is CodeShip. CodeShip is continuous deployment made simple. Try CodeShip for free. Setup only takes three minutes at CodeShip.io. The software industry transforms more and more every day. Agile methods are quickly replacing traditional ones. The question is, are you agile enough? This podcast is devoted to agile and lean software development. Time to welcome your agile coaches on This Agile Life. Hello everyone, I'm the host of This Agile Life, John Sextro. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Lee McCulley. Hey John, I am excited to be here at Agile Link today. That's right, we're recording live in front of a studio audience here at Agile Link. If, we, if you clap, that will help us. Applause! Yes, here at This Agile Life, we do not use an applause track. We have live people. We have live people applause. because people come first. People over process. People work here. Yes. Oh, heaven forbid. People work here at Unigroup. And that other person down there is Jason Tice. Yes, John, thank you. I'm excited because it's great to be here at Agile Link. And on top of that, before we started recording tonight, the word governance was said in, our, in the introduction by Brenda. And I love governance. So I'm excited and have lots of ideas to talk about that topic in particular. We don't all necessarily share your joy over the term <laughs> governance, though, Jason. Okay, well, take that in the parking lot. Uh, fine. <laughs> So tonight, folks, we're going to be talking about, of course, our favorite topic, Agile, and we're going to provide some recommendations for going from good to great uh, with agility and maybe offer some advice that you guys can use in your jobs back at your shop, back at the head shed, and incorporate into how you're doing Agile and, and just your everyday life as a person and a practitioner within uh, an Agile practice. Again, the whole concept of people work here, that's one of our that's one of kind of our catchphrases with the podcast is we like to remind people that, yes, we are indeed people, not resources that work here and do these things. Uh, so shall I begin tonight or, or would someone else like to? I guess I will start. Um, my recommendation for going from good to great tonight for everyone is the whole team approach. By round of applause, uh, let me know if you've heard about the whole team approach before. Okay, so that's some people. Um, so I'll, what I mean by the whole team approach is that everyone participates at a similar level within the team, that we have the ability to swarm, that we don't have any key man or key person risks on a team where only, only Joe can do the BA work or only Sally can do the development work, only Tom can do the QA work. One of the efficiencies that we learned from lean in lean manufacturing is that having more people that can roll overload and participate in various ways to clear out the constraints that we may have in our system allows us to be more efficient, um, to produce higher quality product in a more timely manner. So um, that's the essence of, of my tip. I think that more teams should have, there should be, less about roles on teams, and the real role you have on a team is just as a team member. Uh, you may not be able to contribute at the same level, and of course, you're as someone else, uh, you may not have the same exact skill set, but the, the, uh, there, there's a, an example that I like to give in that, you know, you can, you can write your name with your non-dominant hand, but you can't do it as well as you can with your dominant hand, but you can still get that done. So if you were hard-pressed to get something accomplished, write something down with your non-dominant hand, it's the same sort of concept here. Even if I'm not a QA tester, but I'm a developer, or if I'm not a BA, I'm a QA person, I can roll overload and figure out and help pitch in to make sure that we're focused on the most important work first. So essentially, that's my tip. Guys, what do you think of the whole team approach. So, John, I have to say I, I generally agree with the whole team approach, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here sure. for just a moment and talk about what if this is, there's also the concept of, especially when you're talking like a QA on the team, that you don't want developers necessarily doing QA because 
the developers already know what the what the gotchas are, and they may actually avoid them. Um, so it's kind of like the the government, right? You, you have this separation of powers for a reason. So uh, so I don't want the the senators being able to go up and suddenly become a chief justice. That would be a bad idea. Is it okay? If you say so, Lee, I believe you. Uh, so that's true. I, you wouldn't want to have a single individual who has all the keys to the missile silo, right, and can turn them all by themselves and, and launch the missile. But there's some, there's some things you can do. Uh, maybe you have a, a standing working agreement on your team that you don't QA your own work. So somebody maybe comes over and you, you ask for a code review of something that you've QA'd or you ask for someone else to QA your work. Or maybe you swap off with someone else. Hey, would you... Would you come QA this, and I'll work on deving what you have uh, while you're QAing it for me, so that we don't lose time. So I'll also say that one of the things that we're doing on the team that I'm working on right now, which is kind of towards this whole team approach, is we actually have like our design guy who is uh, embedded with the team, so it's not it's not separate places um, uh, that we have to go to for these things. We actually do have. Um, they pair with a developer uh, at certain times. Uh, same thing with our QA, by the way. So our QA is actually writing uh, automated tests, and occasionally they will pair with a with a dev, and vice versa. Not not just for um, for times when those two people are doing dev work. It's also when those two people uh, or the devs may want to do or need to do QA or need to do some design as well. So having people just kind of learn what the other people's jobs are is really useful, especially when you get to that communication, that really important part of Agile, which is communication not just between customers and outside people, but between the team too. So John, what I want to ask you is how do you cross what I'm going to call the dev slash non-dev divide and still achieve the whole team approach? So folks that have are non-technical in nature. Yeah, so I'm the product owner. You know, I speak in business language. I don't know Java. I could sit next to Lee and try to write some Java code, but... I wouldn't that, expect a product owner to write any so, code. But, but so then how do you... What, what would be your advice really for our listeners and for the audience to say, you know, you, you have some people with some different skill sets. So what do you do to still facilitate the whole team approach when this idea of everyone just kind of pairing with everyone may not always work or add value? Why won't it work? Pairing together, but that, I think that's a, an option to allow people to get up to speed. Obviously, there, there are going to be um, maybe legacy teams that you have where you don't have the ability for people to roll overload 100% across the board, but you've got to find some balance in some way. So maybe you, you can say, okay, if in the example that you were giving, Jason, if someone is non-technical, but they're, maybe they're a tech writer, and they're, they're participating on the team. We need to surge. We need to catch up on some of the QA work. They maybe can't write automated tests, but they could at least use the application, uh, be instructed as to how to use the application, help test by exercising the application, walking stories through manual testing and some things like that to help, help the team along. Then maybe you can shuffle people around and take somebody who's a really good automation tester and have them do some development work. So there's an opportunity to find ways um, to spread people around. Ultimately, what I think you want to do is cultivate your team to a point where everyone has the ability to do a little bit of all of the jobs on the team. Yeah, yeah. and in particular, one I've coached a lot recently is saying even if you are a dev and you're focused on development, there's a huge value you can gain from saying, okay, I'm going to go pair with the product owner for a few hours and we're going to work on eliciting user stories based upon our last stakeholder meeting. And some devs are really, they don't, they see that they, they don't see the value in that because they said, oh, the product owner can go do that all by themselves. But the problem is then, then you're not supporting the whole team approach because you're putting all that emphasis on story creation and, and story elicitation on that single person. The, the point that frustrates me with this with the, the anti-side of this concept is when someone on the team is, is particularly siloed. They're only capable of doing one particular thing. But right now, we don't have any of that sort of work that's the most important thing that needs to be done next. So now I have to invent work for that person to do 
our pull uh, work that's of a lower priority forward. So that person has something to do for eight hours, five days a week. Now that that's all well and good, but now that causes a ripple effect because we have to test that, we have to package it, we have to deploy it, and we have to release it, right? It would be much better for the team if I was able to use that person and their skills to work on the next most important team thing for the project. Okay. Sure. I think it works. Uh, let's go on to Jason. You're oh, your next. Okay. I'm next on the list. So my recommendation is very simple. Um, and I, I, my thought when, I was, when John asked me to think about something was to say, actually release your software to production frequently. People don't do that? Uh, well, so some of the anti-patterns I see a lot of are we go through the motions. Maybe we have, a, um, we have a soft environment, so it's very similar to development that we deploy to. And at that point, there's a lot of differences between the configuration of that environment and what your production environment looks like. So when you actually have your product at the end of your project, you go to deploy to production and you find that it doesn't work or there's unexpected consequences that you didn't plan for. So my recommendation is to move that, that learning and that, that work as, as far forward in your development timeline as is possible. Um, and some other benefits come from releasing frequently too. First and foremost, if you put your product out there in front of real users, you can get probably the best feedback about if you're actually building the right thing. So uh, I've worked with teams where they've built, they've done demos, they've worked with their customers, they've had fantastic product owners, they've gotten fantastic feedback, they finally ship or release their product, and they get poor user feedback. So um, these days with the ability to release software to the web or to mobile so easily, um, if you're not considering how you can leverage a continuous deployment pipeline as part of your business plan, that's something you should really consider. And if you're concerned about you know, wanting to control who can access what, you should invest in the framework to support a feature toggle pattern so you can release features to production, only allow certain people to use them, and then enable them whenever you need to without the need to change the configuration of your software. But so, Jason, it's hard for me to release my software. <laughs> I can't do it that frequently. So something we've talked about a lot on prior episodes of This Agile Life is I want you to feel that pain, John. And I want, when you feel that pain, and of course, if I'm there, what am I going to do, Lee? Complain? No, I'm going to capture metrics that demonstrate your pain and make it transparent. And then I'm going to say, John, okay, you just did a push to the demo environment for our demo at the end of our sprint. It took you six hours today. Let's do something so next sprint, it takes four hours or it takes less time, and we're going to work towards improving that process to eliminate the pain. Lee and I were talking about this the other night with Amos, and uh, Amos has hit what was what's what's Amos's line, Lee? That he, he says about these things that are hard to do. A Amos says if it's if it's something that is causing you pain that is hard to do, do it more often. Yes, yes. and that's where I've I've seen. Um, I know I've been on a few projects where we got to the end of the project, we wanted to release, and we were unable to release because, you know, to, to be fair to the team, we had done everything within our power, but we had an environment that had a that we actually deployed to that had some different constraints that were separate from our own test environments we had used all along. So I would encourage you to get to production as soon as possible. And I know sometimes there are costs to set those environments up, but a lot of times if you actually measure your cost of delay, you'll find out if you have to delay a release for some unexpected consequences, the cost to recover from that delay far exceeds the cost to deploy earlier in your release cycle. So that's my simple advice. Um, and again, I do emphasize the idea of real feedback. Um, another thing that I think is a great benefit, um, working with uh, having worked ops before, is if you um, a developer learns a lot when they have their software in production, they're working on maintaining and actually enhancing that existing version of their software, yet they have a different version out there that's their baseline. So there are some configuration management challenges that really help developers improve, and it is more complicated. Um, it's... It's easy to do greenfield projects where you're just building new stuff, but kind of like we heard about our, our friends here at Unigroup tonight, when you have legacy code, there's a lot of challenges. And I think the greatest way to get good learning and good experience doing that is to push your stuff to production, feel the pain, and learn how to overcome it. I think that's good advice and something we all strive for. I know I certainly am striving for releasing more frequently and taking less time to release and having a, a more well-maintained well, uh, path to production, it, it's difficult. Yeah, it, It's one of the harder things to do, especially in complex environments. And a lot of us, I think, work in complex IT shops where there are, uh, there are gates 
there is compliance, there's governance that you have to deal with. But all of that is part of our job as coaches, uh, as agilists, is to figure out ways that we can help other people change and transform and find ways to be agile with their deployment process that will still align with uh, with the necessary corporate governance and compliance that Jason likes a lot. Good tip. Good, Lee, you uh, got anything on that? Good advice, Jason. No, and I, I wrote notes about you because on a prior episode of This Agile Life, um, Lee was talking about one of the challenges, and I gave him the same advice. I said, get good at releasing because, it, again, it, it forces good developer disciplines and it teaches developers some disciplines that are common practices in the operations community. Um, we had a scenario where they were always, they, they had didn't really ever figured out how to best manage your database migrations because people said, oh, we can just drop the database and recreate it every time we do a deployment. Well, in production, you can't do that unless you can drop your production database. And you got that app, that's cool, but I think most everyone here probably doesn't. So, um, so again, I, I work and I work to help people learn. So I like the idea of people learning by doing real things. So, Any other ideas, Lee? No, that sounds great. No, okay. Let's see, I think we might have a oh, comment a from question. the audience. Hey, thanks, John. Uh, my name's Rob Flynn. For those that don't know me yet, Jason, by the way, the average male is not six feet tall, so thanks for setting this back up for me like this. I actually did not do that, um, <laughs> and I guess we should have tested. Heaven forbid we actually test our setup. <laughs> no no problem. That's right. Fail early, last, fail often. Last so, responsible moment. <laughs> oh, that was Monday night at the WIP meeting. Um, John, something that I've noticed uh, in what you're talking about, I totally agree with what you're saying, Jason, about releasing early and releasing often. Something that John and I have experience with, John and I worked on a project once upon a time, a long time ago, uh, called Pharmacy of the Future. And I remember when we were working on that project, one of the complicated- You have to say it the right way. Off. Pharmacy of the future. <laughs> I'll let John take that. Um, but one of the things that the team was immediately faced with, and I think something that people run into a lot, and Unigroup may be experiencing this as well, is when you're going to rewrite something that was legacy, you have a hard time getting your users separated from the fact that, well, I need to do all of this stuff before you can release this. So however long it takes you to rewrite this thing, whether it's a year, whether it's 18 months, we're expecting that Big Bang release to give us everything. One thing I thought that they did great uh, when we worked on that Pharmacy of the Future project was that they separated it up into various areas that they felt they could take pieces of it, rewrite that piece, and hook them in to the other pieces which allowed for that uh, early and continuous improvement and, and releasing like that. So I've worked at a company um, in the past that wouldn't do that. Like they needed that big bang thing. And, and as you would expect, it, we didn't get it out to the customers fast enough. And the feedback that we got involved a lot of rewrite and a lot of pain. And, and I kind of thought back to POF thinking if we had done it where we could make a logical separation of the components and stuff and doing it that way, that that would have helped a lot. That's, a, that's great advice because you often hear, Rob, uh, one, of, one of the things that people say is, I have a minimal viable product that I have to release at once. But there are options. There are ways to proxy into systems. There are ways to have demo environments. There are ways to have, uh, in, in the case that we had, where we had an ability to intake work and, and route work from here to there. And did that take extra time? Of course it did. But it was worth its weight in gold once you had that because you could quickly get feedback from the users via regular deployments to a near real-time production or a near production level environment and have them use it. I'm glad you pointed that out and brought that up because that's, that's a great point to, to tack on to Jason's when people challenge, I can't go to production that often. There are ways to do it, and, and that was an example. Within a compliance-heavy organization, right, a lot of HIPAA compliance, a lot of toll gates, the, we were still able to release to production very frequently. Yep, and the, the most value of that entire project came by those people seeing that stuff get released and, ha and watching us make incremental improvements to it over and over again. And the first time that I remember the pharmacist saw that they said something they didn't like and within the next iteration saw it fixed, that, that sold our product right there. It sure did. Thanks, guys. Great. Yeah, and the thing to mention related to that is if you're looking for, because a lot of times there is, an, there is a resistance to invest in improving the deployment process for legacy systems. So you got some old COBOL system, it, you know, it's not the tooling and the processes and gates that support it don't allow that. The way that I've actually made the case for that to be improved in many environments, measure the cost, the amount of time it takes you when you have a critical outage to recover. And you're really your way you can justify improving your release pipeline is to say, imagine we could reduce that cost by being able to recover faster when we have a failure, that, that's a great way to promote assurance and keep your system up, but it's also a great way to say that you can also release updated capabilities to your production environment. 
All right, let's move on to Lee's recommendation tonight. Okay, so my recommendation actually comes from a developer background. That's kind of where I'm at. And uh, so what I see on a day-to-day basis is the fact that uh, making the life for your devs uh, nice and easy will allow them to do much better uh, and handle better change in the future. Um, so I, I actually put this as sweat the small stuff. And when I talk about small stuff, for those of you who have done development before, what I mean is things like, what is your, uh, what is your check-in process? Is that anything that you're ever going to worry about at, a, at, at the Scrum level? Well, maybe in a retro where you're talking to the devs. But uh, go ahead, Jason. So, hi, Lee. I'm a new member of your team. How do I learn what your policies are? We have a, uh, a charter, and okay. all those important things that we care about are up on posted. And if you want to, you can go read that, and then we will show you how it's done because we're going to pair with you. And you have a bunch of witnesses here because Lee has now just advertised we're actually going to write the policies down. I, I did this. So on the you current You did this. Oh, yeah. We, uh, we uh, uh, actually, I've had requests from, from, uh, other, uh, from other teams that they like my, my process for creating a charter for a new team because I focus on the important stuff. I don't just go down the list and... And uh, oh, okay. And so we can get that entire process done in about an hour and a half. And so our audience understands that a little bit of context on this. Uh, Lee and I worked on a project together last year for almost the whole year, and we had a back and forth about documenting or making policies explicit, where um, I recommended it, and Lee and the other guys said, ah, I don't think so. But there were a couple challenges as our team grew and as people changed. It's hard to show up and be a new member of a team when you don't really know what to do. And if it's not written down, you know, John may tell you one thing, Lee may tell you something else because it's kind of tribal knowledge. And I actually, I applaud that, Lee. Congratulations. I wonder how many uh, folks on teams in our audience tonight uh, actually have working agreements or uh, project charters that, that they've created for their projects. By round of applause, please. Oh, I have a few. More, more than I expected, actually. Yeah, that's good, though. But if, then that's a fun activity. Um, I, do, I do chartering exercises and mission and mission tests with Lego, uh, which is a, a fun activity um, to actually... Really, uh, the Lego activity is more focused on ensuring the team understands the business context. But at the same time, I was in a stand-up meeting today, and we were having a 15-minute off-topic discussion in stand-up about what our, what our merge-to-master requirements were. So, um, and it was all things that, as people had come and gone, the tribal knowledge has evolved. And I'm like, can we please write it down or something? And, uh. <laughs> as long as you don't ask me to have metrics around it. I will automate your <laughs> metrics, or check out this new. Um, this, I'm good. Check out the new um, Atlassian group, and I'm sure we can. Uh, that'll be fun. I'll. <laughs> I know lots about metrics in Jira. It does has some great tooling built into it. So, so to to wrap up, basically, my recommendation is when you are uh, coaching, or if you're on a dev team, um, tackle all those little pains. That if you look at any one of them, they seem like just trivial little issues. But when you add them up over all of the things that uh, a dev team has to work with and has to do, it creates a huge amount of, of just, oh, I got to do this again. And so if you can clear out a good portion of those little bitty things, then suddenly the devs have more energy to deal with some of the bigger changes that you might be trying to, to introduce. So don't, don't forget about the small things. All right. More Is that good, it? Are we done? More good advice. Uh, why don't we invite anyone in the audience to come up and either offer to the group a recommendation for taking their agility uh, from good to great or ask us a question about any of the recommendations that, that we've given tonight or any other questions on, on the topics of agility and agile. And now let's pause to thank our sponsor. Our exclusive sponsor tonight is Codeship. CodeShip is continuous deployment made simple. Guys, I just set up my current Node.js project on CodeShip, and it was easier than I ever could have imagined. Within minutes, I was set up, and every new push to my repo triggered my tests to run and for my deployment to build, and boom, I was done. That's deployment made simple. I was worried that CodeShip wouldn't support Node.js, but they support just about every language on the planet. They support just about every cloud provider, and if there's something that you need that they don't have, you can create your own integration. If you need help getting started, the good people at CodeShip will be glad to help you. 
Codeship has some of the nicest and most knowledgeable people you'll ever find, and they're so dedicated to testing and continuous deployment. They offer tons of helpful information on their blog at blog.codeship.io. Software development is hard enough. Let Codeship make continuous deployment simple for you. Check them out today at codeship.io slash thisagilelife. Hi, my name is Sonal Patel, and uh, some of the, what uh, our team kind of has been running into lately that I've been seeing is that uh, I guess um, we, start, we recently started adapting Agile, so not the whole structure isn't completely Agile process yet. So we got the smaller teams, the smaller core teams working in an Agile system, but our requirements and stuff come from above down. So my current or team current situation is that we get requirements, we develop, but then those change. So currently the time is like being wasted. The, so any the requirements to that? change? Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the basic question is how do we move faster knowing so I, I will start by saying if you can break up those requirements, my guess is they're, they're not something you would call a single story, right? There usually requires uh, more, than, more than a day to accomplish, right? Correct. Okay, so um, if that is the case, then you can break it up into smaller steps so that at any one point, um, this is what we would call a, 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 a thin vertical slice, so break it up into some piece that I had, uh, the user the, can see a benefit. They can see some change, right? But I can actually accomplish it. The dev team can accomplish the entire thing and hopefully even have an out to production in a day, right? Or at least to some place where their users could see it. So if you can break it down into day or smaller chunks, then if they change the requirements on you in the midst, You've still got, if, you, if it took you five days and then they changed it on you, you've got five days worth of work of good stuff that you've done that isn't throwaway. It's already out there in production. Great. Throw away that old stuff, bring in the new requirement and break those up. That would be my first thing. The other thing that, based upon where you are, and this, this is more of an active, an active coaching opportunity with what sounds like your business stakeholders, is you know, when Agile started and everyone wrote user stories on note cards, that was very intentional because it constrained the airspace. It made you write small user stories because that card in and of itself was very small. It'd be interesting to see if you had your, your stakeholders or whoever's writing, who has these ideas, actually have them go through the process of writing them on cards as opposed to probably some big long document. Or if you're using an online tool, configure the tool so you limit the length of the description you can type in so you can't type an eight-page document in and see if that helps because that's going to reduce the scope of your stories. It's going to get them smaller like Lee mentioned, and you'll be able to pivot as needed. And, and Fennel, I would also uh, encourage you to, let's think about this slightly differently, because you mentioned that the discovery of change is causing waste. But think of it in, this, in terms of the scope of when you discover that waste. It sounds to me like you're, or when you discover that change, it sounds to me like you're discovering that change very quickly. And I think for an Agile project, it, it's common that you have some time up front where you're kind of figuring your way out. Your product owner and, and the sources of the requirements are hopefully seeing what you're doing. They're understanding better how the process works, how Agile works. They're getting feedback. They're seeing what you're creating and then they're able to give you feedback. And so they're adjusting and that there's an adjustment period there. And what you may be feeling is waste now because the change is going on is actually a benefit because if you would be doing this in a more traditional waterfall approach, they maybe wouldn't have the opportunity to give this feedback. And what you really would have wasted is eight months to a year's worth of time delivering a product that they're not going to use or is wrong because they never had the chance to give the feedback. So what you feel is pain right now is actually good because you're able to adjust and adapt to the change. Yeah, and John, to what you said, you know, since you mentioned we're, we're everyone here at Agile Link tonight, we're all Agile change artists, as Esther Derby says, or we're Agilists, whatever your term is. The words that we use, the, even the, the small nuances make big differences. 
Because what you're actually describing and what John, what you're saying is as you're doing this and you're changing your requirements, you're actually learning about what you need to build. You're getting feedback and you're learning, which is highly valuable. And I would encourage you when you talk about this with other people, don't talk about waste, but say really emphasize the learning that's occurring from, from the changes and emphasize the learning. And that way people see the value of what's going on and they're not drawn by, they're not distracted by what probably is actually waste, but it's waste that is providing indirect value. Make sense? All right. Yep. Thank you. Great question. Who's next? We need, we need a speaker's list. Or I will talk about governance and no, what you need someone to, else do please to do come effective to agile microphone. governance. We, we, we can't have... Effective a, agile governance is facilitated by having everyone involved in the decision-making process. Maybe, maybe not. Oh, my goodness. You can, you can pull it down a little bit. Go there we go. Hi, my name is Debbie Durbin. I'm with a company called Lumiris, and we're a software development company for the health industry. So... I agree with you delivering frequently in the 90s when I worked for the railroad. We were using Agile and we delivered very frequently. However, in a, being a software development company, I will tell you our customers do not want to be delivered with major changes because they spend a lot of money in training people. So the cadence that we put together is we do put, to, put out uh, small enhancements, defect fixes on a monthly cadence, and then quarterly we're putting out a, a, a major enhancement. So that's kind of a, a different approach, and I think it's because of who our clients are. So, so I think, um, so I think what you're what you're talking about is not necessarily against what we were talking about. Um, there's a difference between um, consistent or even continuous uh, delivery to your customer so they can see it. There's a difference between that and releasing. So you can you can pause and and wait to release whenever you want, but the point is is you really can release whenever you ta decide to, as long as you're you've got processes that allow you to to deliver on a daily basis to a point that your customer, whatever that is, that could be one person that's in there deciding, yeah, that looks great. Okay, release it tomorrow. Yeah, right. like right now as an example, like the next six months of features that will be enabled in Facebook. Are, to all of us normal Facebook users are all already deployed. They're just disabled. We cannot use them. And really, whenever Facebook is, has tested them enough, they will re-enable those for everyone to use. Um, and they're constantly deploying updates with these new features that are just turned off with this pattern I'm, we mentioned called a feature toggle. And that's a way you can, you can achieve that type of control and really allow your create a separation or break the barrier down between IT and the business. So basically, sometimes the business sees IT as a barrier to bringing new things out to market. Here you say, you know, you know, business, we've gotten ahead. We've deployed that new module or that new feature to production. It's ready to go whenever you want to. You guys tell us when and we'll just flip the switch and we'll turn on and we've already tested and we know it works. Most businesses appreciate and are able to be more successful leveraging that type of agility. And then I have one other question. I promised a lady that I work with, she's, from, writes, she's a technical writer, and she asked me a question that I really couldn't answer because being a mid-sized company, we're not a big company, so we don't have technical writers that can be assigned to every team we have. Um, so they're kind of spread out. They're a shared service. So she was just wondering if there was something in the communication that could occur to make sure she does stay in the loop because when she's hopping back and forth across several scrum teams, she may miss something. And she's writing the technical uh, documents or the training material that our external customers are going to get. I would say that's a, great, um, that's a great problem you can solve with a workflow system. And I'll, I'll think, of a, think of like a card, a card wall, a Kanban board, although a lot of times teams have a, a, a card wall, but, and it's, they call it a Kanban board, but they may not be practicing Kanban. But maybe she has a lane in that, where as stories go across the board, they get to that lane, and that's her signal that she needs to review them, and then she can handle that when she has time to do so, or even as she has a chance to visit each team, and she can ensure that nothing's missed. One suggestion I have for, the, for tech writers out there, for anyone that's writing documentation, user-facing documentation, is to treat the, uh, that writer as another user of the system. Train them give them demos, allow them to have access to the team to ask questions. Uh, they're not going to be able to transparently pick stories off of a wall or off of a board necessarily and then 
be able to write documentation like that. You kind of should, my perspective is, I, I guess I disagree with Jason a little bit on this, is to treat them as another user and elevate them to that level and then um, treat them accordingly with those things like demos, regular access to the team, uh, the ability to use the system in a, in a pre-production environment, uh, training, et cetera, things along those lines. As long as you don't treat them like a resource. Well, or I would, I would caveat my, my statement, John, and say that I think everyone who is building a product should be a user of that product because it, it forces you as, a, as someone who's contributing to the effort to build that product to really understand what you're giving to your customers. Um, and likewise, as I mentioned before, talking about operations, I highly advocate for developers to have the opportunity to follow their code to production because if developers see how how what needs to be done to support their code in production, it will influence how they develop their code. And sometimes sometimes poor decisions are made during development that make it really hard for operations to keep systems up and running. So uh, the best way I've had to coach that is, you know, walk a mile in their shoes and follow your stuff to production, support it, and learn how to improve and make that job easier for the people that have to do it. The other thing you can do is spread the tech writing out across the whole team and allow yeah. allow people to write the documentation as they're doing the development work, or at least parts of the documentation, and then maybe you take that, hand it off to a professional writer to polish it, organize it, make it presentable to a user community. The, devils, the devs will suck at that. Yeah, and just one other, one other thing kind of related to the question that I, that I, that I just thought about that's a little different take, because you mentioned one of your impediments to releasing was the need for training, and knowing that that might point to a, a different opportunity for improvement in your organization, that being that I can use this iPhone as an example. Who has one of these out here? Lots of people have these things, right? What, when you bought it, what was in the box? A charger? Yeah. What else? Well, no user, no manual. user manual. Because Apple invested in designing the user experience of this, so it was intuitive and it was like self-teaching. And I have kids, and my, my kids know how to use this, and I just gave it to them. You know? And hence, maybe there's an opportunity to inject a user experience element into the way you're developing your product to eliminate the need for that training. And a lot of times, actually, I'd love to see a case to see if you invest in user experience and actually build a product that is self-training. What's What provides a better cost-benefit um, ratio? Say that is it more effective to invest in designing a product that's easy to use? Then you don't have to do all that training because people can just figure it out by using it. So it looks like we have some other questions, yes, other questions. waiting in the queue here. Why don't we, we have a speaker's list, question. finally, yes. Hi, um, my name is Scott Thrall. I'm with uh, Citibank. And uh, my question uh, and experience is around the planning poker exercises uh, and some of the interesting no challenges. Estimates. No estimates. Yes. No estimates. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. And around the interesting challenges that the teams have, have kind of run into over the course. We're in our second year of our project. Um, and the team had decided late last year to go to a representative poker planning rather than having all the teams kind of presented. Um, and one of the things that we noticed this year is that velocity had reduced itself. And so what we were, what we were getting com complaints back from the team, while we, we thought they were going to improve because they thought, well, if we send less people, we'll, we'll have more people that can stay busy. They won't be distracted by that you know, hour and a half to go and do poker planning. But what happened is some of the representative folks would go plan the stories. Then when they got passed out in, in our sprint planning, the teams would say, oh, my God, this is horribly pointed. This was way, way harder than the five people that we sent to planning. And so we saw drops in velocity. So the team started to really kind of struggle. And um, have, have you had experiences around these uh, these poker planning exercises and is this kind of a trend that you've kind of seen as teams maybe come into this theory and then kind of jump back out and go go back out? So to simple answer to that is um, and actually it goes back to what John recommended with the whole team approach because by not having the whole team involved in reviewing the stories you're violating the whole team approach because that's something that the whole team should do together. But it's understandable. I think what what Scott's saying, what they were trying to accomplish was they didn't want to take the whole team's time, a protracted amount of time on a regular basis to go through and do the estimation. But did you do anything to measure the amount of time it cost you to all for all the rework and changes or bugs or all the things that could have gone wrong and sounds like they might have? Um, in that case, and to the credit of the guys from Scrum, 
the, that's why from the ritual of the planning meeting, everyone's involved. Everyone is involved in the discussion and leaves making the sprint commitment because the only way that that sprint commitment is valid is if everyone is on the same page. And what did you do to try and become more efficient in your poker planning? And, and Jason and I both yelled out no estimates because we, we both feel that there's very little value in, in doing estimation uh, and that there are, but, there are ways around but that. But can we caveat that to say that knowing that I – a lot of times the no estimates discussion is misunderstood because by no means, and I think John, you and I do agree on this, is that we are advocating for teams to have whole team discussions and clarify working with the product owners what needs to be in the stories. Where I've seen a lot of waste actually is when we get into political debates about is it a five or an eight, you know, it's like that's where there's no value. But there's a tremendous value in having those discussions as a team to ensure there's whole team understandings of the story. A lot of people have misinterpreted the, the no estimates argument to say, oh, we don't have to have planning meetings anymore. We don't need to do any of that stuff. And then they get into situations worse than what you're describing because you've got all this individual siloed knowledge about each story and there isn't any whole team continuity. What do you think about that, Scott? Uh, <clears throat> well, I mean, <clears throat> sorry. Um, I, I, I completely agreed. And, um, you know, I took this back to the teams and I showed them as, you know, a scrum master, hey, this is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing velocity drop. I know you guys are worried because you're afraid, hey, this is going to come back on us. And I said, you know, I fear, I fear that what's happened is your stories are actually the same size or, you know, you're doing the same amount of work. You're just not being represented by the point velocity that's, that's out there. And I, I just simply put it back to the team and said, guys, how do you want to solve it? And, you know, of course, they all came back and said, well, I think we should all come back and, and join poker planning sessions as a, as a team again. So they were able to come back around to that. Um, but I, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that have gone through these exercises and have found those challenges around the, the poker planning. And, and so that's something I just wanted to kind of get out there and kind of get your guys' feedback on that. So I really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, so, so work to get more efficient, cut down the, the noise, Focus on what, what's the value of, of the estimate. You're never going to be right because an estimate is a guess. Don't try and be right. Just get everybody on the same page that this is about the same size and move on. If you're doing five stories in an hour, start doing 50 stories in an hour. So, so I would, I would recouch that John is saying, don't worry about getting agreement on how big the story is. Get agreement on what the story is about. Yeah. Yeah, the value's in the conversation. Right. That's yeah. fair. The other metric you can track, if, well, just to kind of close that out, is I would also say make sure you're tracking some type of a metric that draws focus to that problem for the team. Um, either estimate how many stories are not, you know, measure and report and chart how many stories are not accepted each sprint. Um, a neat one that is pretty easy to pull from most of the online tools is uh, actually measure story delta after it's started. So hence we had a story, we started developing it, and then somebody actually changed the story or they refined it as during development. And then as a coach or a scrum master, look at that data and use that to kind of encourage the team to focus more on having those discussions. So the team is involved in fleshing out the details of the story and anyone who works on it has the benefit of that information. All right, let's see. I think we got another person from City with a question here. Now the fun begins. Yeah. Hi, my name is Joe. This is the first time I've ever spoken at an Agile Link meeting. So. <laughs> So my, uh, more of a statement, kind of to mirror what Lee was saying. By the way, for the folks on the podcast, you can't see Lee's shirt, which is awesome. It says, I failed the Turing test, which I just love. But, Thank you. Uh, you mentioned what is the Turing test, Joe, for everybody's sake? The Turing test was created by Alan Turing to help determine if a machine could truly represent artificial intelligence and that it could demonstrate that it was, or it would be, let me rephrase that, it would be impossible to determine if it was a machine or if it was a human being. So Lee is saying he's indistinguishable from a computer. <laughs> Thank you, Lee. <laughs> Does that make you a resource? Probably. Yes. Yeah! Can, can we let Joe talk? Sorry, Joe. This is much more fun for me. <laughs> but I was going to say, so um, to mirror one of your uh, statements, sweat the small stuff. Uh, I also think that a lot of Agile teams don't sweat the big stuff as much. You see a lot of developers, testers, dot, 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 who hop on the team and say, I'll just do my part. I'll do my development. I'll do my testing. But they don't really get into the vision as much. They don't say, you know what, what are our business goals? What are we here to do? And they focus so much on the micro that they let the macro go unnoticed. So what do you guys think about that? 
I think it can go. Uh, that, that's very a good point. Uh, the uh, the big vision, I think, is one of the things that I've struggled with on teams a lot is uh, making sure that everybody on the team shares a vision for where this is going. So that's kind of the big stuff that you're talking about. And if the whole team doesn't really know where they're going with one with even a particular feature, then uh, you end up with. Uh, with bad decisions being made and you end up with rework and it slows down and the devs aren't happy anyway, which makes it even worse. So yeah, I think that's a good point. It, it also plays into the whole team approach because you want everyone to have, have a unified vision uh, so that you're, you're not counting on a single person to be carrying the vision around their mind like the, the product owner. The more, the more that can be disseminated out to the entire team and the more people can keep their eye on the prize, keep their eye on those on those uh, those big blocks that you're that you're the big rocks, right, Jason? That you're trying to crack. Do you want to talk about big rocks? Oh my goodness. Okay. Not really. I just wanted to say big rocks. But the <laughs> the, the better, the more you can keep track of, the more everyone is is focused on those things, and keeping that in their field of vision while they while they operate down at the detail level, the better off you're going to be. You can't lose sight of where you're going on the trip. Real problem. Um, it's been if you've read Daniel Pick's book Drive, you need to have an understanding of the vision to know where you're going to foster motivation. And again, this, if you have a self-managing agile team, they need to be self-motivated or they will fail. Um, the simple activity that I do with teams, um, including teams I coach right now, and I don't have pictures, but I can show them, is we build Lego models of the vision. And it's an activity that the whole team does. So the whole team is involved with the vision. Product owner, business stakeholders, whoever is involved, and they all put themselves in a room for about 25 minutes, and they actually build a representative model using Lego serious play techniques. And uh, at the end of that, typically what you do is you would record what I call a testimonial, which is someone from the team or the team as a group narrating what the model means. And the nice thing about the Lego and using Lego as a medium, it's incredibly complex. So you can model things that you may want to draw focus to in the vision, but it's also very easy to do, and it's fun, and everyone relates to it. Um, and the best thing is that as the vision changes or as the people change, new people can kind of look at the Lego and say, oh, okay, that's what we're doing. I get that. That's neat. Um, and it can evolve with new people. So let new people on the team kind of contribute to the Lego and help them refine the vision. Very cool. I don't want to derail you, but I'd love to hear more about that maybe in a side. Yeah, and actually, uh, we, we do picks at the end of the podcast, but one of, my, uh, one of my picks has to do with games and stuff for like a, a future Agile Link meeting. So we'll talk about that later, I guess. For, for the, our listening audience, there's a birds of a feather thing that we do after, after the main discussion, so maybe that's something we can get into more. It's not tonight. I don't mean Legos with me. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joe. For a change. This week's Hottest Picks. I'm going to go first. Uh, since I spoke about the whole team approach and role overloading and things of that nature, and I also spoke about this book, on the last po- uh, podcast episode of the podcast, I'm going to go ahead and make it my pick tonight. It's a book, The Toyota Way, uh, by Jeffrey Liker. This is a very instrumental book for me. I thought when I first read The Toyota Way, I thought, "What is this? What is this? How is this really going to apply to me uh, in software development?" We're talking about an automobile manufacturer. There can't be anything further from software development than an automobile manufacturer. And as I read the book, I found so many corollaries to software development that I was just uh, overwhelmed. And I learned a number of principles of Lean, a number of concepts within Lean that I, that I continue to use today. So I encourage you and our listening audience to check out the Toyota Way. All right, Lee, what's your pick? Well, I've uh, been doing a lot of dev on, uh, on Android recently and have come to really enjoy and uh, would like to sing the praises of Robotium. Uh, for those of you who have ever done Android, uh, this is like Selenium uh, in that you get to, to click buttons and verify things on the screen. And what's great is it actually runs on the device uh, that you're testing against. So you can have Robotium set up against a whole bank of different devices different, uh, uh, on different versions of the, of the, uh, of, uh, the Android OS. And, and it's very cool. Uh, very easy to write. It's not nearly as as clunky as Selenium. So, well, they applied everything they learned from Selenium. Yeah. They did it well. Okay, Jason, you're up. As usual, I have a lot of picks. So, oh, yeah. um, 
So, yes, because this is not governed. You can have as many as you want. So You're um, right. There is So no I was exposed this week to a new tool. Um, it's kind of an online collaboration tool. It's called Slack, S-L-A-C-K.com. It's web-based IRC where you can do channels and um, has a web interface. It also has mobile apps for Android and iOS. If you want a, a new way to collaborate, um, kind of a neat thing. We're playing with it at, at Asynchrony where I work. Um, another thing, since we have a live audience here that I just want to plug and mention to you guys, um, I helped to coordinate the Lean Kanban St. Louis group where a very much co-related user group. Um, and we actually meet monthly, typically in what I call the center corridor, somewhere between downtown and Clayton. And we have monthly meetings about lean and Kanban topics, very much, very similar to agile topics. Uh, we actually had a meeting this past Monday. We played a Lego game. Just missed it. It was all about the last responsible moment. Um, I'm trying to do a better job to cross-promote lean Kanban events via the Agile Link LinkedIn group. However, I think this time I waited until the last responsible moment to promote the, the meeting for this month. So check us out. And the last one that I'll just throw out there is kind of a plug since this is an Agile Link meeting. And I, as we were getting set up today, I was looking in the back and I was going through my bag because I was like, man, we should play an Agile game or something because I have a whole collection of collaborative teaming games. And so the next time we have an Agile Link meeting, um, I'll bring some stuff and we'll get a few game tables going during the, the social hour. And we can um, show you guys some neat games to work with your teams to promote collaboration. Um, actually, a way to simulate the whole team approach that John was talking about. And then once you play the game, it's a neat opportunity to have a discussion with your team to say, hey, guys, is our team really like this? And if it's not, that kind of draws focus to saying, well, what do we need to change as a team so we can work together better? So we'll, we'll do that at the next meeting whenever uh, we get that set up. Can we make Lego models of our team members? Uh, I have, um, I actually have done that and I've also um, the other one that's neat if you're in an enterprise is to build a Lego model of your entire your entire development system or your, your development value stream what it typically points out is where you have constraints so like you have the one product owner supporting eight teams and that FYI that doesn't work so don't try that um, so yeah Lego is a powerful tool I think he's immune to sarcasm Lee um, <laughs> sorry I, I, I think you could use the uh, the Legos to as, as a twist on the empathy game Oh. Drawing the empty picture. Uh, anyway, okay. Thanks, everyone. That's all we have time for. Thanks to our hosts here at Unigroup tonight. And thanks to the Agile Link for having us. That's all we have time for tonight. Check out thisagilelife.com for these show notes and for all of our past episodes. Thanks for listening and keep living this Agile life. <laughs> This Agile Life is brought to you by a community of Agile developers and coaches aspiring to spread the word about this groundbreaking approach to software development. Join us at thisagilelife.com forward slash community.